We are in chapter 6, Mishnah number 6 of Pirkei Avos. We're towards the end of this amazing book. And we're in the Mishnah that talks about the 48 ways to wisdom. If we want Torah. And what do we want as much as Torah? Nothing. If you want Torah, you have to acquire it. And the means to acquire it, our sages tell us, are manifold. There are many different ways to acquire Torah. And we're up to way number 29. The person who is positioned to acquire Torah is someone who does not take credit for himself. When someone studies, they're elevated, they're transformed, they ascend. And there can be a person who studies Torah and says, look at me, I'm better. I'm more elevated. I'm more transformed. I'm in a class of my own, peerless amongst the other members of my species. Someone like that is not deploying this means of acquiring Torah. This means of acquiring Torah is that notwithstanding what a person studies, they don't lord over others. They don't feel a sense of supremacy. They don't feel like they deserve credit and they deserve plaudits and they deserve to be lauded because of their study. This means that someone should study because they have a a sense of duty, a sense of this is their mission in life, a sense of responsibility. Earlier on in our book, we had, in chapter 2, we had the Mishnah that says that if you study a lot of Torah, it uses the exact same words, don't, don't take, don't assume greatness, praise for yourself. And then it adds, why? Because for this, you were formed, you were created. If you were to ask us the question, why were we created? The mission tells us the answer. We were created to study the Almighty's Torah to engage in the Almighty's wisdom, to immerse in the will of God. It's an amazing, simple synopsis. To do what you were created to do, you were designed for this purpose. When a person just executes that that they were designed to do, it's not something that they deserve praise for. The system was designed for this purpose. It was engineered for this purpose. And it's working as intended. You don't deserve to be lauded for that. You don't need to be praised for it. It's not a source of great pride. When someone is fulfilling the job that they were created to do, they're just doing their job. And therefore, the mission tells us, this is again in chapter 2, that if you are of the choicest of us who study Torah and study a lot of Torah. That is not justification for a person to feel superior to other people. Why? Because you're just doing what you were created to do. Now again, we don't yet see how this is going to help us acquire Torah. We see that it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense to be prideful, but we still have not gotten to the point where this it stands to actually being useful in the acquisition of Torah. 
So idea number one is that we shouldn't take credit for what we study because that's just what we are supposed to do. On an even more basic level, our shaitas tell us that just as our body has an agenda, has requirements, has basic needs, your body will not function if you fail to feed it food, if you fail to provide it with sufficient oxygen, if you fail to provide it with water, with various nutrients, with, with various vitamins. There's a whole list of requirements that a body needs. There are essential nutrients that keep us alive. That is true with our body. It's also true with our soul. Just as the body has a list of requirements, the soul does as well. And of course, we call those requirements, we call them mitzvos. Each mitzvah is targeted towards a specific part of your soul. As it is tell us that there are 613 mitzvos because there are 613 parts of the soul. And each part of the soul is nurtured, is sustained, is maintained with a different element of its food. The body is physical, it needs physical food. The soul is spiritual, it needs spiritual food. And the spiritual food for the soul is the mitzvah. And the various mitzvahs for the various different parts of the soul. But Torah, Torah study, is equal to all the mitzvahs. Talmud, Torah, Kineger, Kulam. Torah study is the multivitamin. It's the panacea. It has all the nutrition for all parts of the soul. And that's why our sages tell us that you can aptly compare Torah to bread. It's the bread and butter of the soul. Moshe, in the beginning of the book of Devarim, he tells the nation, it's not bread alone that man can be sustained with or needs to, be, needs to have to be sustained. Man needs the word of God as well. Torah is the bread, so to speak, for the soul. When the Romans prohibited the public study of Torah, Rabbi Akiva violated that restriction. And when someone said to him, Rabbi Akiva, you are endangering your life, you are imperiling yourself. He responded with the analogy of the fox and the fish. The fox goes to the water and sees the fish. And the fish is darting here and darting there. It's trying to escape the net of the fisherman. It doesn't want to be dinner. And the fox tells the fish, Why are you darting so furtively in the water? You're worried about the nets? There ain't no nets over here on the land. Why don't you hop up on the land? And you'll be safe. So the fish said to the fox, The fox, you're supposed to be the most clever of all the animals. You're supposed to be the wily fox. And you're such a fool. I only have life in the water. And yes, over here there are dangers, but outside the water, I'm dead right away. Similarly, says Rabbi Tiva, yeah, I'm in the water, and there are nets, and I have to try to avoid them, 
but outside of the water, I'm dead. For Rabbi Akiva, who is so connected to his soul, he truly realizes the Torah is bread. Torah is also oxygen. And it's safer for me here teaching Torah, trying to avoid, trying to dodge the nets of the Romans than it would be for me outside of the water, outside of the oxygen. For someone who truly senses what their soul needs, Torah is bread, Torah is oxygen, Torah is water. Ein mayim ela Torah, our sages tell us. And there are many different analogies that the Midrash brings as to why it is appropriate to compare Torah study to water. Well, water covers the whole world, from one end of the world to the other. It's quite expansive. So too, the Torah is expansive. It goes from one end of the world to the other. And just as water equals life, it provides life and growth to the whole world, so too Torah provides life to the world. And just as water originates in the heavens, so too does Torah. And just as water can purify the body, you want to take a shower, you go into the water, Torah also purifies the body. It takes all the blemishes and cleanses a person. And just as water, it really, you know, you think about water, it really comes in only little drops, little drop here, drop there. But what happens, especially in Houston? You have a little drop here, a little drop there. Before you know it, there's a flood. Torah works the same way. It never starts off as a flood. A little bit here, you learn a little bit today, a little bit tomorrow, two laws today, two laws tomorrow. Before you know it, there's a veritable flood of Torah. And just as water is so essential, no matter how important you are, how great you are, how exalted you are, you're not embarrassed to ask a simpleton, can I have a glass of water? So too, when it comes to Torah, no matter how elevated and refined and scholarly and transformed a person is with Torah, you're never embarrassed to ask from someone who's smaller than you to teach you, to help you. And just as water is sometimes dangerous, if you jump into the ocean and you don't know how to swim, you are doomed. So too with Torah. You want to jump into the deep end and you want to render a ruling in Torah, but you're not a real expert swimmer, so to speak. Well, then you are spiritually doomed. So we see how essential really Torah study is for a person. It's bread, it's water, it's oxygen. When someone eats, when someone drinks, when someone breathes, no one applauds for them. No one gives them a kudos for that. Only babies are celebrated for eating. 
I guess when you go to the doctor, they say, breathe in deeply. Maybe that would qualify. But we don't go around giving people high fives for breathing. Maybe on a meditation retreat, I don't know. Wim Hof. Maybe some people could be celebrated for breathing. But when it's it's your life, that's not something that's worthy of celebration. You're doing it because it's the most basic function that you need to live. So you study a lot of Torah. Oh, I, I eat three square meals a day and I make sure to drink enough nutrients and I breathe. I I really inhale into my lungs. Look at me. Are you being silly? You're breathing? It's life. Anyone who realizes the value of life and the necessity, the imperative of breathing, breathes. It's not worthy of being applauded. My grandfather, a blessed memory, in one of his books, he spoke about a personal time in his life and specifically how beneficial the study of Musar was for him. And he writes that for eight years he lived in Sweden in a community that there was barely a minion, barely a quorum of, of ten people who kept Shabbos. He had been in the great yeshiva of, of the Mir in Poland, some of the great giants of the nation, and he's cast away into a spiritual desert. And all the rabbis, he writes, or almost all the rabbis, that went and served in that community, they became corrupted. The atmosphere, the spiritual atmosphere was such that it just sucked away the vitality of all the rabbis that went there. And then he says, if I succeeded to some degree to preserve my standing as a Ben Torah, as someone who's serious about Torah in those years, when I was alone, when I was marooned on a spiritual island, that was only because I studied Musser consistently. And if not for that, who knows what would have happened to me. And that allowed me to remain a loner in my world. And then he says, I am writing these words only because I don't see it as any sort of self-glorification. I view it simply as a person saying I remained healthy in a time of a famine because I ate bread every day. This is what I remembered when I was thinking about this subject. It's not a source of pride. Yeah, of course you feel good. Everyone feels good when they study. Everyone feels good when they accomplish something in Torah. Torah is supposed to bestow joy on a person. We, we pray every day. Let the words of Torah be sweet. But it's not a source of pride. It keeps you alive. It keeps your soul alive. It's food. It's water. It's oxygen for your soul. It's not a good reason 
be prideful. And somehow this attitude is one of the ways to acquire Torah. I get it. Once I have Torah, you should realize that, well, it's just the basic food stuff for your soul. But how is this attitude a means to acquire Torah? I understand. We should be prideful. But why would not being prideful assist a person in the acquisition of Torah? There's a very deep point over here. You can only acquire Torah if you have this attitude that Torah is bread, it's water, it's oxygen. Your entire life depends upon it. The mission of acquiring Torah, it's very hard. You're trying to assimilate within yourself the will of God. In every area of life. That's what it means to acquire Torah, not just to have one nice idea here, one nice idea there. To actually upgrade your mind, to say my mind has now been upgraded to the will of God. It's now compatible with the will of God. Because I've studied what he says about everything. That's very hard. And if you don't feel like this is absolutely necessary, it's bread, it's water, it's oxygen, and getting it is not a source of pride at all because it's so necessary. I need it for my life. If you don't realize that, you may study. And you may learn. And of course, everything you study, everything you learn, you will get rewarded for. Because the Almighty does not withhold reward from anyone who does any mitzvah. But to really acquire it, to know it all, to remember it all, to be able to differentiate between things that are very, very subtle, to see the truth and to separate the truth from the flawed understanding, and to see the entire breadth of Torah. Torah is as broad as the land, as deep as the ocean. The only way to do that is if someone has the maniacal determination of a person who realizes that their life depends upon something. And thus, if you find Torah as a source of pride, obviously you don't realize that it's something that your life depends upon it, and therefore you won't have that necessary determination. It's some sort of extra. Okay, extra, it's fine. But if it's not your life, you won't acquire it all. Obviously, it's a very high level. You know, most of us, um, I'm certainly not holding by really, uh, even though I had the great privilege of spending time in yeshiva and studying with people that were, were committed to Torah in a way that we cannot even fathom. I mean, this is a very high bar, what we're learning over here. That if you actually are serious about acquiring the Almighty's Torah. It can only be done if a person truly realizes and recognizes that it is absolutely necessary for their life. The verse tells us that Torah is a tree of life to those who cling to it. And the commentaries tell us that a way to understand this verse, what does it mean to cling 
to the tree of life. Imagine there's a raging river. There's a tsunami that's sweeping through town. And you manage to hold onto a tree. And you're holding on for dear life. Literally. You let go of the tree, you are washed away in the torrent. That is the attitude that the verse is talking about. It's a tree of life, but you have to hold on to it. You have to cling to it. You have to realize that it's a tree of life. And that's the attitude that our sages are telling us. That's what's needed to acquire the Almighty's Torah. Of course, we love to study. And Torah has been our nation's national pastime from time immemorial. It's our national obsession. And why not? It's, after all, very enjoyable, stimulating, intriguing, interesting. It's fun. It's fun to study. To really acquire it, you have to know that it's an imperative. It's water, it's oxygen, it's bread, and that will make it float, so to speak, to the top of your priorities. And you can have that sort of determination that's really needed to acquire it, to really own it. At Sinai, the nation accepted the Torah. And the Talmud tells us, it derives it from one of the verses, that the Almighty took the mountain and turned it upside down on top of them, like a barrel, and threatened them. If you accept the Torah, great. If not, I'm going to bury you. People were were threatened. They accepted the Torah at gunpoint. And the commentaries all asked the question, wait a minute. The verse explicitly says that the nation opted in. We will do, we will listen. What else do you want? They have accepted the Torah. Why is there a need to threaten them? Why must you turn over the mountain on top of them like a barrel and say, if you accept the Torah, great. If not, I'm going to bury you. It's unnecessary. They already accepted the Torah. One of the answers is that yes, we will do, we will listen, we're in, we're committed. You have to know that this matters. This is life and death. If you don't accept it, you reject it, you're crushed to death. It matters existentially. Not enough to say, we we like it, we're in, we're committed. Even if we don't know about it, we'll, we'll do, we'll listen. You have to know that the sword of Damocles is right above your head. The mountain is perched precariously right above you. That's a different level of a commitment. Whenever there is some sort of conflict, what happens? For most of us, well, you know, I have a conflict. I cannot do my study. And I am not judging anyone who has that attitude because I, I think I'm guilty of it as well. What our sages are describing here is a totally different system of priorities. 
No one says, I have a conflict. I'm going to take an hour off from breathing. I'm going to take a week off from drinking. I'm going to take a month off from eating. If someone really realizes that this is not something which is worthy of pride because it's so necessary, it's so critical, it's so fundamentally important, that is the utmost priority. And of course, Torah bestows upon a person unparalleled sense of satisfaction. If you're fortunate enough to study the Mayas Torah, that's great. And you feel great about it. And it gives you a sense of satisfaction and pleasure. And it's sweet. Here's a higher level. The higher level is that you realize it's it's life. It's oxygen. And there's no extra credit. And that attitude is the real attitude that we must adopt if we are serious about the acquisition of Torah. And of course, this is a very hard standard for us. I wonder how many pursuits in general, forget about Torah for a second, how many things are people so committed to that it really is something they're willing to forfeit everything to achieve? I feel like there's been a a spiritual and intellectual degradation of modern times that the idea of, of, of serious commitment and sacrifice for the sake of knowledge It's a bit of a foreign idea. But there are still people that live with this sort of commitment. I had the privilege of spending time in the Mir Yeshiva in Israel, but also in the unrelated, surprisingly, Mir Yeshiva in New York. And the head of the yeshiva was a legend. Passed away since uh, since my time there. His name was Rabbi Berenbaum. And he was someone that really lived with this attitude. The Torah study is life. And I'm not willing to unplug from it, just like I'm not willing to unplug from a source of oxygen and water and bread. And specifically, the yeshiva schedule is sacrosanct. He was unwilling to change anything of the schedule, no matter what the upside was. And there are legendary stories how there were some really wealthy patrons that wanted to give a very large donation to the yeshiva. says, I'm not speaking to them during Seder, during the the time allotted for study. And if I lose a million dollar donation, that's okay. Again, no one would take an hour off from breathing for a million dollars. He was not willing to do that with Torah. And I remember hearing how they had the the base measure, so the, the study hall. It was very old and it desperately needed to be renovated. But the great rabbi was unwilling to allow any renovations to the study hall, it was a very large study hall, during the semester. Not a second. Sorry, we're not giving up any time. So they agreed, 
the, the administration agreed, okay, we'll do it during the break, the Benes Mano, between the semesters. And they hired extra crews and they worked through the nights to finish this massive job in a few weeks. And they were getting towards the end and they realized that they're not going to be done in time. They'll need another few hours to finish the job. And they go to the great rabbi and they say to him, is it okay if we miss just maybe a few hours in the morning of the first day of the semester? Maybe there's another study hall that you could use. And the great rabbi responded, I will be at my seat at exactly the appointed time by davening, by the prayer service at 7.30, whenever it was. We're not, we're not doing anything. This is, we're starting on time. And they hired temps and they worked furiously and they finished it in time. This is a portrait of someone who really equated his schedule, his religious life, his life of his soul with what we would do with life of our body. To him, Torah study was, was bread was water, was oxygen. Our Satan tells us that prayer, prayer, we do it three times a day because our soul needs to be fed three times a day. I prayed. Where's my kudos? No one gives you high fives for eating breakfast. You're just feeding the soul. Most of us don't have this attitude. But Satan is revealing to us that if you really want to acquire Torah, you really are serious about it? This is the attitude that you must adopt. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.